back. You're listening to In Situ Science. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode we're back in the kitchen. And I'm joined by a bioinformatician, marine ecologist, and full-time German, Dr. Tim Kalka. <laughs> Tim, what are you making? Um, I'm doing something very German. Wallaby. What? Wallaby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> German style is nah, it with sauerkraut? Or no, not with sauerkraut. Is that even German? Needle. Just make that up. No, that's. I think it's German. <laughs> uh, I had it with um, knödel, so it's the typical. Well, we often usually make them from potatoes or potato balls, basically. Mm-hmm. But in um, this case, my favorites are made from old bread. Doesn't that sound <laughs> yummy? Breadcrumbs. No, okay. really bread. So you take, <laughs> if you make them yourself, you take your old buns, basically, or old bread, and you chop it in cubes and soak it in milk and egg and stuff like that. And you make balls from that, and you spice it up, and you make you steam those. But in Germany, efficient as we are, we can buy them pre-made. <laughs> so you basically have to just throw them into water. And I brought them from Germany last year, I think, or. Yeah, in January. And brought them over. Brought them to over. Make. <laughs> I love them. So, yeah. That's what I'm making with wallaby, with paprika, and stuff like that. Sounds great. So, I wanted to open with a very broad question What on earth is bioinformatics? <laughs> That is a very good question, James. Yes, it's become um, a bit of a buzzword almost. Yeah, it's absolutely. You know, everybody's looking for bioinformaticians. Absolutely. Everybody wants one. No one really wants what to do with it, but they want one. Yeah. Um, what is bioinformatics? So, um, I think it, it's a little bit of a problem. The, the original idea was that as biological sciences become more and more data or become more and more data sciences too and more and more analytic too um, people realize that they can't take their sequencing data and um, align it or work with it with pen and paper or with Excel so they had to talk to computer scientists and if you ever talk to a computer scientist so a pure computer scientist <laughs> um, that is sometimes not as easy as it might seem. Yeah. So, especially as a biologist, there's even different, or the terminology, even the words are the same, but the meaning is sometimes completely different. So, mm-hmm. when I started in, when did I start? 2000 in Germany, there were two universities that tried to integrate computer science or as much biology, biotechnology into computer science to make computer scientists understand what a biological problem is and how do you cope with biological problems and how to communicate with biologists without using um, terminology that is just not logical for other people. So, um, so yeah, and then you you get this mix of a person that is mostly computer scientist but is able to understand biological problems, write software, things like that. So in the past, I guess scientists were dealing with data that they could handle with a spreadsheet or a pen and paper. Now, with technology the way it is, we have massive databases that can be you know, gigabytes in size. 
That's it, and you also had the problem, like, I mean, everybody who, who works in biology nowadays with sequences knows a tool called BLAST, which is mm -hmm. basically you take a protein or a um, gene and you try to compare it to known proteins or genes. And even this relatively simple, from one point of view, relatively simple um, tool Before it existed, you, you had no clue how do you, what is similarity? How do you even define similarity between two proteins or two sequences? And how uh, are you able to do this or compare thousands or nowadays millions of them in a reasonable amount of time? Mm -hmm. So, um, if you think about sequencing nowadays where you get in metagenomics where you basically try to assess the complete um, bacterial or microbial um, diversity of um, water sample, which can be in the, what is that, microbes tend to the power of six per water drop, <laughs> so there is a lot of microbes or bacteria in there, so it's like millions of organisms, viruses, algae, bacteria, um, the data volume is can be in the terabytes range, so if mm. you then try to compare terabytes of data um, Without a computer, it's impossible. But then, um, yeah, so you basically, there was an absolute need for computer scientists and for people who are able to handle large amounts of data, develop tools, develop software, so that life scientists, biologists, m medical doctors can use that. So you're working with sequence data, so you essentially have these long strings of letters that represent you know, nucleotides, Or proteins, so amino acids, that's also possible. So you can also have amino acid sequences that are, or genes that are then transcribed and then later translated into the active compounds of a cell, so proteins, mm -hmm. enzymes, um, or, or what we see, cartilage or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All of that is, is, um, built up from genes or from blueprint gene that is then translated into the, into the protein structure that mm. we see meat. So you're, you've got these big long data sets and you're essentially writing command line to find sequences, align sequences, that so, sort of stuff? Yeah, that's, so that's, and that's why it's a little bit tricky. So yes, the answer is yes, <laughs> but that is only a little bit of the answer mm -hmm. because, um, when I'm, the problem is that A lot of people don't really... So there is a distinction between um, something that nowadays uh, that crystallizes a distinction between um, computational biologists and bioinformaticians. And yep. that is something that a lot of people, even in, in science or in the science community, often don't realize. When you use the computer for biological problems, if it is sequence analysis or comparison, that doesn't make you a bioinformatician. Mm -hmm. And when I'm, I would write a software tool, that would not mean that in, that I'm immediately able to interpret, biologically interpret the results that I get from these tools, mm -hmm. because I wouldn't be a complete biologist to do that. So nowadays, there's basically the distinction between a computational biologist, which is someone who writes a little bit of code and analyzes data and interprets data, mm -hmm. and the bioinformatician that writes new data and basically pushes the field forward to, to um, incorporate new technologies and get more out of your data than okay. just, just 
Chris, I'm sorry. You're not just analyzing data, you can be writing entire programs. Exactly. To well, deal with it in the ways that didn't exist before. Yeah, because if you think about it, I mean, sequencing, and that is something that is that is just always mind-blowing for me, sequencing itself um, started basically 15 years ago. Before mm. that, you had, yes, you had a little bit of Sanger sequencing, or you could sequence short stretches of DNA in the lab, which took a lot of time. It was very, very um, time-consuming, and you couldn't uh, assemble long stretches of DNA, but at one point we got the next generation sequencing, where you could sequence longer and longer stretches of DNA and put them together to have small bacterial or, or microbial genomes. Mm. And then we had the Human um, human Genome Project, which also started in 2000, I think, and it took like seven years, ten years, and it costs millions of dollars to <laughs> assemble one human genome. Yeah. And it was, but at that time it was mind-blowing. You know, it's this, wow, we have this complete genome. And nowadays you take a little bit of saliva or have like what is my uh, my DNA or whatever it is or uh, send a little kid pack with it yeah, spit in it yeah. exactly you send a spit pack or me 24 what's it called me 20 me 23 me 23 that's it <laughs> send your DNA back and they at least sequence specific loci and tell you who you're related to in theory and mm-hmm. yeah where your ancestors came from so but all of this explosion of data happened in the in the last 15 years, and mm. it's constantly now you have the, for two years now you have the, what I call a minion, but it's called the min ion. So it's ion torrent <laughs> technology, where someone where they produced a single pore, uh, artificially constructed protein that is wide enough to let one single DNA strand through. Mm. So you basically, and the whole thing, the whole sequencer is is credit card or check card size, and you plug it into your computer, <laughs> and then you drop extracted DNA on it, and your laptop sequences large stretches of like 50,000 or up to 20,000, 30,000 nucleotides in a row, just on your PC, mm. at home, if you want to, and this, but it um, also produces so much data that that you have to handle somehow. Mm. But this is all in the last five to ten years, and every year you have new technology and new challenges. What are the strength? Is it longer longer sequences? They have all different errors that may introduce, so you have to write a software that calculates this error in or takes this one error into account and not that. So it's a it's a really fast changing, fast evolving field in the last mm. yeah. 10, 15 years. So we've got all this brand new data, all these biologists that want to use it to answer questions, <laughs> but it's not feasible to teach biologists computer programming. It's more feasible to get people with programming skills and teach them biology. No, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and that is something. I, I was recently on a conference and um, someone said, well, we realize so this this is where the difference between the between the computer scientist or the bioinformatician and the computational biologist comes into account. 
food because until a couple of years ago or five years ago, this distinction was barely made. So everybody, everyone working with a computer and sequencing data considered himself or herself a bioinformatician. Mm -hmm. And now people realize that for the analysis of data, it's often way easier to teach a biologist enough programming and computer skills to analyze the data himself and then it is to take a computer scientist and teach them biology. So if... Who was that? Who is the, the famous uh, physicist and um, British guy? Uh, Brian Cox? Oh, yeah? Yeah. He recently... Or he said... He's a physicist, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when he started um, looking into biology and looking into... into um, the documentaries he made uh, did. He said, before I started with that, I considered biology one of the arts. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know. But the, the honest answer is that a lot of mathematicians, a lot of um, physicists, a lot of um, computer scientists don't understand or don't immediately, don't understand it's wrong, but don't immediately have a hunch for how, how variable biology is. Mm. So... That's an anecdote where, where I looked at um, two proteins, two enzymes that do exactly the same thing. And you look at it on your screen and you see all these ATCs and Gs. And, and they're doing the same thing in a body or in your body, but they are 40% different. So you have 2,000 nucleotides, for example, 2,000 ATCs and Gs. In the human genome. Well, not in the um, human genome, into in one specific one gene, gene yeah. of that. And you compare it to something else, another organism, let's say, hypothetically, to a bird. And you know that these genes do exactly the same things. But if you compare them, you see also that they're 30%, 40% identical. So if you look, up, um, look at this on a screen and you highlight all the identical and all the non-identical parts, for example, the non-identical ones in red, then 40% of your screen would be red. Mm -hmm. That does not look like the same thing. Mm -hmm. So from a computer science point of view and from a physicist's point of view and from a math point of view where a zero is a zero and a one is a one, and then you come into biology and then you see that something that is 40% different is the same thing. You know, it's same like, animal, same yes. region of DNA. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It does the same thing in the body, but that is often, I think, very surprising for a lot of people that come from very definite sciences like like math and and computer science, and where it's easier for a biologist or for a life scientist, I think, sometimes to accept. It's like, yeah, that's the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it looks almost completely different, but. That's enough similarity that ah, it's the same thing, you know, 70%, 60%, I don't care, it's the same thing. And they're often right. Mm. So, um, so what you're saying is that bioinformatics is essentially Michael Bay's Armageddon, <laughs> where it's easier to teach drillers to be astronauts than to teach astronauts how to use a drill. Um, so <laughs> no, yes, yes and no, because this distinction is basically back to the computer science, uh, computational biologist bioinformatics thing. So for analyzing data and doing things like that, I think it's easier for the biologist. But as soon as you go on into 
hardcore bioinformatics, which is just one part of it, to develop new software, to develop new approaches for error correction, for for um, new models to model whatever you want to model. Mm. So then I think you need the hardcore bioinformaticians, but it's a really flowing... Um, it's not, again, it's not an uh, absolutely distinct this is this and this is that. And this, um, that's what I meant with a development over the last five, uh, five to ten years. So I, I see myself as a computational biologist as much as a bioinformatician. Mm-hmm. But it starts that you get these two segments that are kind of starting to crystallize there because it's just more and more people doing the same thing and more and more areas where you can apply the computer um, and bioinformatics slash computational biology. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So did you start off with an interest in computer science or <laughs> biology or both? If this is such a relative... Relatively new field. Yeah, no, I started uh, with a uh, definitely with a with a biology focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually wanted to become a human biologist and grow tissue in a in a petri dish. Like that. that was <laughs> That's what they do. Dream, yeah. You know? um, solve the big problems in science and. Yeah, wearing a lab coat, <laughs> all these great things uh, thought of when I was like, I don't know, 12, I think, or 15. I always wanted to go into the medical or, or um, molecular biotechnology side. Mm-hmm. And then I started at one university in, in Germany, in Greifswald, um, high up in the east, very old university and was like what was it, 10 years after the wall came down, so it was at that part still very you could very much see the, the big difference between Eastern and Western Germany and I came from the West and then went into the East to study there mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if it was because the university was so um, conservative but the way of how animals were treated in these studies of that you have to kill your animals yourself or that you have to catch hundreds of butterflies and stuff and that you weren't even allowed to, to talk about the possibility that we are impacting, negatively impacting biodiversity mm. to educate people, not to solve anything, not to archive, not to collect anything or get anything scientific out of it other than getting a degree in the mark and basically mm. the disrespect for animal life was what shocked me and then basically I thought well how could we maybe change that or, or how can I still stay in science and this part of science without completely without having to work in a bank <laughs> and, um, and that's where I came back so I basically looked at it it's okay what do I want to do and there was this new thing, bioinformatics, coming out. I thought, like, why not? So I bought a computer, my mm. first personal computer, and um, started studying together with people that programmed since they were 12, I think. So it was a, <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty tough start. It was a pretty steep then. learning curve. It was, definitely. And yeah. had, in the first six months, you had to write your own first software, and if you didn't make it, then you were basically out of it. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights in the beginning, I think. Mm. And, um, 
Yeah. But I mean, it, it's easier, right? I mean, coding is essentially like learning a different language. It is. The way you think in a different way and think laterally, that once you're doing it, it, it becomes second nature, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's also... There's a lot of articles about, about um, computer scientists hypothesizing that it's actually not every human being has the ability to learn programming. There's some huge articles about it. In, mm. Like scientific articles, and there's a certain ability you have to have, and that might be even something neurological and... Yeah, right. You need a really good teacher. <laughs> That's exactly what you need. But I mean, yeah. I've heard it said that skills like programming can be... Uh, uh, there, there are certain personality types, or maybe even people that are a bit on the autism spectrum, that are more suited to that way of thinking. Do you think that's the case? Or is it just a matter of you know, learning it when you're young? I think neither nor. So I'm always, so, I don't know, maybe I'm lying to myself, because I'm always, I always thought, if you want to learn something, you can learn it. Mm. Is there a preference for people that might be better at something? Of course, it's always better when you learn it early. Mm. Yes, no, no doubt about that one. But, um, yeah, I don't know. The, this autism spectrum thing, be, I mean, I am not on the, well... I guess I'm not. Nothing you know of. <laughs> <laughs> you should be very careful with these statements about yourself, right? But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's not, I think a lot of people that are really good at it and start early, they also start early because they had an interest in it or they were in a small town where there were few people or they didn't have anything else to do or something like that. But mm. I'm not sure if it is. There is, of course, or I'm, I'm of course, there's people that are better in it than others, you know, mm. like with everything, right? So with painting or with music or with, But I'm not sure if the cliché about the IT crowd or the socially awkward <laughs> computer scientists is actually true. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that if people don't know how to code, they at least sort of understand the fundamentals of the language or the practice so that you can at least have a conversation right. with someone about it because now that everything is driven by technology there's this danger of sort of being in an in inequity between who has access to the power of programming and who doesn't yeah but so so it's funny because um, um, I think Germany is often although we are often regarded or we Germany is often regarded as a country that is very uh, technology-driven and um, and very on the forefront and stuff. I think we are actually very conservative often about this. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook, if it's Facebook or or um, WhatsApp or whatever, never start a discussion about data privacy and, and <laughs> we just had it 20 minutes ago, right, with an app that I have to install and then it asks me... Do you give access to your contacts, your pictures, your camera, your what? Why does it want? You know, so it's like, um, I think the problem there is often a mentality thing where, where people just, um, 
over countries just have to act basically and schools have to act I don't think it's an intelligence thing or anything else I think which is in, in um, Australia they're starting right mm-hmm. uh, there's program in IT will be I don't know what did I read it, year three or something like this I want to make it mandatory you introduced to the primary school curriculum I was working for a company that was <laughs> teaching teachers into their classrooms and it was it was essentially for that reason you know people were sort of worried about you know us teaching really young kids programming because it's like well what's the point you know yeah when are they going to use it and it's not so much about making them fluent programmers or fluent you know coders it's so they actually understand what What is going to be this driving force behind their lives in the future I mean who is who is basically doing all the things we'll have autonomously driving cars we'll have the internet of things which mm. everybody which maybe because I'm German sometimes scares the heck out of me we have it's Skynet we're, we're avoiding Skynet <laughs> <laughs> well from one point of view who knows you know it's, a, it's an interesting conversation and I think for a lot of people it's really far out and it's tinfoil head stuff but um, <laughs> on the other hand when I met um, my partner Kate um, on the on the conference last year We heard someone from Berkeley, um, and he, or we saw someone from Berkeley giving a talk, a colleague of, of, um, one of the main artificial intelligence people. We just, uh, happened to have, or just wrote an open letter about the, together with Stephen Hawking and I think 20 or 30 other high class scientists and computer scientists and philosophers about the, emergent danger of artificial intelligence and mm. that is something yes you can laugh about it or one can laugh about it and um, you can also put it into the same conspiracy theory stuff like the, the large, large hadron collider that they had that mm. oh no they create large uh, tiny black holes and stuff that destroy the world but um The thing is, if we are creating, and we are getting closer and closer to to um, to it, if we are creating an artificial intelligence that is at least semi-intelligence, um, if it develops something like a self-preservation will or will or or wants to self-preserve its existence. Then we might actually be faced, or might be faced with a with a problem that we didn't see before, and there mm. was too much Skynet. I'm not sure Skynet if it will be something. Yeah, but but it's an interesting question because we ourselves don't understand intelligence fully, right? So if we take a computer and we have self-learning algorithms, um, if we take this another 50 years or maybe 100 years into the future, with data collections like Google and Amazon have with mm. data centers like Google and Amazon have, and I mean, look at—I don't know if you—you you most likely saw the deep dreaming pictures of Google algorithms <laughs> that try to yeah, yeah. identify faces. Um, these are neural networks, and they are based on um, very simplified structures in the brain. So um, I don't know if it's. Yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting and slightly worrying thought that we might be confronted with an artificial intelligence, and if we see it as our species humans, we are not even able to to accept that 
animals are equal to us and have a right to live. I'm just cooking one. Or that um, other people, even those that look slightly different or even look the same and believe in something weird, mm. have the same rights as ourselves. I highly doubt that the majority of mankind will accept that the toaster will have the right to live and we shouldn't use them as a slave. <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, I built that shit. Yeah, so I mean, that's a good point. I mean, technologically, we might be able to handle yes. some sort of artificial intelligence, but ethically, ethically and even just legislatively, are people capable of that? Exactly. And I think, so, to come back to the, to the teaching... Um, and not just going into who's going to program it, who's going to develop the new things, who's going to uh, start the new things. But as you said, understanding the basics of it and also understanding through that maybe a little more about what intelligence means and what we are and, and who we are, I think it's a very, yeah, very useful thing for what do you want to teach them. Mm. You know, it's like, there's more and more technology coming. Why shouldn't we teach our kids the new technology? Why do we, you know? Mm. I think it's a really good thing. And it's also, of course, the need to educate teachers and, and um, professionals so that they can adequately address that mm. or address that. I mean, my nephews are already better with their mobile than their parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's not getting worse, uh, better. Mm. So... Yeah. So you are now working at UTS yes. in Sydney in the climate change cluster. That is correct. So you're looking at microbial genomes. How does what is that telling us about climate change? Where's well, the link between microbes and climate change <laughs> and their genes? So we're not just looking at microbes. We're also looking at at um, at seagrass, for example, which I wouldn't. Yeah, which is definitely not a microbe, but mm -hmm. we're looking at, um, so we, there are six uh, different research projects. One is looking at um, um, productive coastlines, so basically um, the ocean is a huge storage for carbon dioxide, so CO2, which is one of the main, main or the main uh, climate gas or mm -hmm. climate house gas that we have. And... A lot of the, uh, the climate gases are taken up by either the water itself, so by the ocean just being solved in the ocean, but mm. then also um, used by microbes if it is um, corals, for example, that build those calcifying or build these this wonderful structures that we see as their home, so they bind CO2, or if it is... Um, microbes or bacteria themselves or in general that just take the CO2 and use in photosynthesis to microalgae and cyanobacteria um, building up larger molecules from it like plants. Mm -hmm. So a large proportion of, of the CO2 in the atmosphere is um, or of the carbon cycle um, is going through the ocean. So the question is then or oh, there are various questions. Number one, how much CO2 can the ocean actually take up or the organisms in the ocean? Who is taking it up? Who is mm -hmm. actually living in the ocean? That's another whole question that we still haven't, on a microbial scale, still haven't, haven't um, 
was yeah haven't solved basically or addressed the the problem there was another for me fascinating thing is until five years ago or maybe ten we were not able to investigate any other bacteria that we couldn't or all the bacteria that we couldn't grow in a in a laboratory or mm-hmm. in a lab everything that you couldn't grow in a lab you knew it was there because you could measure certain parts of its existence but you had no clue who it is because mm. you couldn't grow it and you needed a large amount of it to actually look at it through the microscope or mm. get the genome out. And now there's um, what they call, or we call, metagenomics, where you can take everything that is in a drop of water, basically, mm-hmm. and sequence the DNA and have a look at it. Um, but because this technology is so young we realize that around 90%, 95% of all bacteria on the planet, we didn't know about that. Mm. So now we're going back and, I mean, if you look at, at all the bacteria books, there's huge books already about bacteria, and it's like 5% of what's out there. Mm. So, so there's a huge biodiversity of bacteria and of microorganisms, of viruses, of microalgae, small algae, um, and they are all using carbon. At least the, the photosynthetic ones, they are all using CO2 in the water to build up sugars, build up um, uh, parts of their membranes. And um, when they die, a lot of them sink to the ground and then become part of the, of the soil there, of the sediments. They're like little tiny skeletons of microbes. Exactly, especially if you think about microalgae like the um, diatoms, this really beautiful... Um, really beautiful things. And, um, they look they look fantastic. If you look through a um, microscope or electron microscope, they look like yeah, like something wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> really spacey. Like Just Google diatoms. Yeah, Google diatoms. See lots of pretty little critters. <laughs> if you think about, and that's the other thing. There's this whole universe of things that we can't see. So mm-hmm. we had a colloquium. Um, Last week, for example, where we had um, Roman Stocker from the from the uh, ETH in Zurich, um, ETH, yeah, I think uh, in Zurich, and he was shown uh, shown pictures where they um, had high resolution, really highest resolution pictures of microalgae and then bacteria next to it, and you could see. I mean, bacteria are often, or the majority of bacteria is even way, way smaller than, than a microalgae. So you see this microalgae that looks like, I don't know, looks like a like the size of a button on a shirt. And then next to it you see these really tiny spots just cruising around and mm. sometimes a small algae explodes and then the bacteria um, sensing that are going for it and foraging on the, on the um, remains of this microalgae. And you could basically and you could see all of this on the uh, on the screen mm. um, over 45 minutes, I think. So every every couple of minutes, you made a picture, and then you see this this um, montage, this <laughs> <laughs> this um, time lapse. And it's just amazing that you have this cosmos of things mm. that you can't see that are highly important for us. For not just for CO2, the majority of the oxygen we breathe mm. is produced in the ocean by algae. And if we think about the diversity that coral reefs give us, if you think about what what fish eat, you know, or what, what um, 
krills or small small uh, shrimps eat. This is all microorganisms that are incredibly important and incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm. There's way more different species than we have different species of, of vertebrates. So, yeah, it's an incredibly interesting topic. So by Sorry. getting these you know, samples of seawater or sediments or whatever, yeah. instead of just looking down the microscope at, and, and looking at critters, we're looking at the genes that are there. And so from that we can get an idea of what organisms are there that we simply you know, can't see or appreciate. That's it. That's and then are you able to also get an idea of you know, the genes in these things and how they might influence the exactly. way they're sequestering carbon from the atmosphere? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that is right. And it's not just carbon, it's, but then the idea is exactly that. So I, I think the main question is relatively simple. The main questions are... Who are they? Who's there? And what are they doing? <laughs> and that's basically that's basically it. So yeah. so by who are there, or who is there, we try to get certain parts of the genomes, um, 16s or 18s. It's ribosomal DNA, so very conserved genes that you find in almost or that you find in every living cell, mm -hmm. and you can take these parts and then compare them and based on a certain threshold of of uh, similarity, you can say, okay, these guys are very closely related to something we already know, or these ones are completely new, never seen that before, you know, mm. which is 95% of the time yeah. the, the case. And then you can basically make a catalog, which in um, Australia we're doing at the moment, or not we, I'm involved in it, but um, it's done... Um, the initiative came from, from CSIRO in Hobart by Levento Bodrossi, um, where I did a postdoc before, and um, he, together with someone from UNSW and Bioplatforms Australia, um, UTS, a lot of local governments, Macquarie University, so they all together um, approached IMOS, which is the Integrated Marine Observatory Systems down in... in um, Hobart also, or is that? Yeah, it's Amos. And they have these reference stations around Australia where they're since, I don't know, since 1800-something, <laughs> they're taken water samples. So they have records down into the, yeah, 1800s, or, mm. yeah, 1900s, huh? um, where they took water samples and measured salinity and temperature and all these bio uh, biogeochemical things mm. that you could measure and they count algae so they look through the through the microscope and they count what they see and then um, Levento Bodrossi went down and said like why don't we try to uh, ask them to also take genetic samples or genomic samples to assess who is there in, in Australia because a lot of times when you look in on the or when you look, having a look on the different distribution of um, microbial studies you have an over uh, or high proportion in Europe and mm -hmm. everybody knows what's there and then you go over to America and you see oh yeah everybody's sequencing and sampling there and then there's a little bit of Africa and a little bit more in South America and then Australia is often a white spot so it's really uh, very few larger marine studies that are done that include um, 
Australian waters and estuaries, coastal uh, regions. Mm -hmm. So they sent out to change that. And basically for now three years, I think, three or four, they're sequencing um, the diversity of it. Um, it's the marine microbes projects where they try to assess who's there and based on these small, very similar genes and ribosomal genes. And on top of that, so that's the first question, basically, who's there? And the next question then is, what are they doing? And then we're looking for, you know, searching for functional genes, trying to compare that, trying to assess what they are capable of doing and things like that. But it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's a lot and it's still very, very early stages of this. So, mm. Yeah. So how, how's the wallaby and the knoodles doing? You know, the knoodle are almost done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did I say that right? Knoodle? Knoodle, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Good. <laughs> no, we're, I think we're almost there. Um, yeah. And as you can see, I'm always getting very excited about these things and even forgetting cooking. <laughs> Sorry to have distracted you. No, it's wonderful. Wallaby. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. So if people want to find out more about your research, you're on Twitter. I am. I am on the tim.kalke at twitter.com, which is T-I-M, obviously. Just at tim.kalke. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. T-A-M dot K-A-H-L-K-E. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise, um, my UTS webpage but also so, so the it's a C3. climate change cluster website yeah that's the C3 at uh, University of Technology Sydney so cool that's, yeah well we should probably wrap things up thanks so much for having me around for dinner <laughs> <laughs> Kirk for you thank you very much to listen to my monologues I love it it's great <laughs> If you want to hear more podcasts, you can check us out at insecretscience.com or subscribe to us using your podcast apps. I'm James O'Hanlon. You can follow me on Twitter with the handle at Jam O'Hanlon or follow NC2 Science with the handle at NC2 Science. Thanks again for joining us. I'm going to go eat some wallaby and canoodles. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time on the podcast.